Well, to get, today we begin a, it's going to be a, for us, a pretty short series on the book of Joel. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be here uh, for five weeks. And we chose to go through this book now because we believe there's some strong parallels between Judah, which is the nation that, that Joel is located in, in his day, and us. It's a, it's a short book with a, a powerful message. And it's such a powerful message, in fact, that on the day of Pentecost, when the church was birthed, if you will, when the, God poured out his spirit upon the uh, disciples who were in the upper room, and he did amazing things when Peter got up to preach the first message post Jesus' resurrection, if you will. Whenever he got up to preach that message, he said, this that you are seeing, the pouring out of God's spirit, is, the be- is that which, or the beginning of that which Joel spoke about back in his day. And those are the days that we still live in now. So what we're going to see, hopefully, over the next few weeks is, is how Joel applies to us now. Now, we'll give a little background first so we can all kind of be on the same page. Uh, Joel was, uh, if, you're, if you have a physical Bible, it's one of those books that I don't know about you, but whenever I'm in church, somebody says, turn to Joel, I feel a little bit of panic, like, can I find Joel? Because it's kind of hidden back in the, in the back of the Old Testament with some what we call the minor prophets, not because they're unimportant, just because they're smaller books than the other ones. If you have an app, hey, kind of take some of it out, you just kind of click on it and click the name of the chapter, and that's, that's a whole lot, a whole lot less uh, pressure if you're in church, but it's, it's, one of the, but it's not only a small book, but it's a, a prophet that we know a little bit about. We don't really know much about about Joel outside of this book. He doesn't explain much about himself. He just says, hey, I'm Joel. This is who my father was. And he kind of starts rolling. And in fact, not only do we not know much about Joel, we don't know a whole lot about exactly what time he gave these prophecies, exactly what time he wrote this book. Uh, He doesn't give the the particularities that some of the other prophets give so that we can tell, like, hey, it happened in this year of this king's reign, or it happened when this was going on in the world. He just starts off and and gives this prophecy, and we don't know exactly when it was. And and, and I think one of the reasons that it's sort of vague in who Joel was and sort of vague in exactly when it happened is because it's it's, the Lord wanted this to, to be a book that would remain vague so it could always be applicable to us. What we do know about it, it was written to the small nation of Judah, and it, it was written after they had come back from exile. That means after they had, been, they had disobeyed God for so long that the nation of Israel, which was above Judah, the ten tribes of, made up Israel, then two tribes made up Judah, they both each, first Israel and then Judah, went into exile. They were captured by the, the most powerful empires of the time. It would be the... the um, it would be the Babylonian Empire before that, uh, and uh, the, then after that, I'm sorry, I'm having a little brain fart right now, then after that, it would have been the, <laughs> the Persian, uh, Persian Empire. Wow. And now they've come back from exile out of Persia from King Cyrus, and they've been sent back to Judah. And they've rebuilt the walls of the temple, and they've rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, but they're just sort of a shell of this former power that they were. Uh, They don't have the same power, the same influence, the same wealth they had before they were conquered and sent into exile. Uh, But they are back in the land that God promised them, and they are free to worship as he directed them. They've, They've reinstituted the priests and the Levites and the sacrificial system. All that has been restored. But what we see happen now, after they've returned back to this nation, 
returned back to Jerusalem. They relied upon God. They called upon God so they could get the temple built, so they could get Jerusalem uh, started to be rebuilt, so they could rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. All of that has occurred, but now they become self-reliant and self-satisfied. That's sort of what happens with us as God's people. When, when, and probably you've experienced this in your own personal life. When, when the chips are down, when things are, when things are tough, when there's a crisis, man, you really call out to God. And you all of a sudden become really serious in your life about calling out to God. But when things start to get comfortable again, it's easy for us to become self-reliant and self-satisfied. We don't know exactly what had happened. We know that their, their hearts had turned away from wholehearted worship and devotion to God. They become self-satisfied, self-dependent. Their hearts had turned from wholehearted worship and devotion of God and a, a subtle but important shift had occurred in their hearts. Joel doesn't go into detail exactly how that manifested itself. But he does point to some serious crises that are occurring, and he, what he does is he, endur- he encourages and urges Judah not to, as Miss Carolyn says, not to miss the message in the mess. Sometimes we find ourselves in a little bit of a crisis. We find ourselves when the chips are down and things are tough. And it's easy. All we want God to do is to alleviate the, the, the point of contention, to alleviate the, the hard part of this crisis that I'm in. And sometimes we find that God is doing something deeper and God is doing something more in us. God allows sometimes challenges and crises and problems. This is what Joel is saying, in order to get our attention. It's not because he hates us. It's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he actually does love us. It's because he has so much more for us. What we're going to see over the next few weeks is that the end message of Joel is good news, but it doesn't start out that way. As you guys heard in the scripture reading this morning, it begins with an appeal to lament. An appeal to lament. Joel feels that he has an important message for the people of Judah. And the message is, hey guys, things aren't right. And they know that. If you, as we get into the, the, in this passage, we're going to see it's, it's hard to miss that things are not right. They know that. But what they are missing is that God has a message for them in the middle of their crisis. Who who is Joel talking to? Well, he starts off in Joel 1, verse 2, he starts off by appealing or speaking to four groups of people. He's He's calling four groups of people to realize this is how serious the situation that we're in is. He says, verse 2, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your, na- in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. He's saying, don't miss the moment that we're in. Don't miss the point of history that we are in. Verse 4, he starts to describe what is going on. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now, we read that and it may not mean much to us. But if you're living in an agrarian society and swarms of locusts come in, and one wave after another wave after another wave, and they eat the fruit, and then they eat the leaves. Then it says they even are eating the bark of the trees. So they're leaving a huge mess in their wake, and your whole livelihood, all your wealth is based upon this 
this harvest coming in, all of your wealth is laid up in this harvest, and this swarming locusts who you have no control over come in and eat them. And it sa- he says, hey, first of all, you elders, you leaders, and then all you inhabitants, everybody that lives here, don't miss. Look at what is happening. Has such a thing ever happened before? This is serious what is happening. It's not just, we already know it's serious that he's consuming all our food. He's saying the message that God has for us behind this is incredibly serious. And then he appeals to a second group of people, which is unlikely. You may not expect, he, he, he appeals to the partiers. He says, all of you drunkards, did you hear that in the passage? Awake, all you drunkards, and weep, all you drinkers of wine, because the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. He says, look, even you who are out partying, living your life, you're seeing effects. You're, you're not in church. You're not worshiping. You don't care much about it. But even you are seeing an effect in your own life. You need to pay attention. The Lord has a message for you here. And then he appeals to Jerusalem and God's holy people, which is the center of their religion. He says in verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. When, he, when a prophet uses language like that, he's usually speaking to Jerusalem and to the religious leaders. And then he appeals to the farmers, or what it would be in their day, the commercial producers. These are the, the businessmen of their day. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. These are the big uh, uh, crops that are, that are in that region. All the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of men. He says, listen, all you people, you leaders and everybody, that includes everybody, even you who are outside the church, you need to pay attention. You church leaders and people who are part of church, you need to pay attention. He says, everybody, you producers, you commercial producers, you farmers, everybody pay attention. What God is doing is meant to grab all of our attention and say, something is wrong. He, he spends time calling the people to notice. He spends a lot of time just trying to get God's people to notice that God is at work behind the crises that they're in. The language that he uses, you would think, you would think it would be unmistakable. Swarms of locusts after swarms of locusts coming in. That's a sign of a plague, the, Lord, the hand of the Lord behind it. But yet it's not enough for them to realize that God's at work. And that's really a prophet, I think, a prophet's toughest job is to just get people to take notice, to pay attention to what is going on. Like Amos before him, Amos, who was a prophet before, uh, before Joel, he said this in Amos chapter 6, verse 1. He says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. That's a picture of God's people. That would be a picture for us of the church. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. It's so easy for us to fall asleep to be comfortable, even in our mess, to miss the message. Even when things are tough and God's trying to get our attention to miss what God is saying to us. How could they, with swarm after locust after locust after locust, how could they be missing the point so easily? Probably the same way that we do. You get caught up in your own personal losses. These, these locusts are coming in, consuming my crop, and you're mourning over the loss. Hey, rightfully so, understandably so, mourning over the loss of your crops. And we, that happens 
we, when we get caught up in our own personal lives and just thinking about ourselves, that we miss the big picture that's going on around us. Maybe they were just waiting for this to pass. Hey, sometimes locusts come through. Hopefully this will be over soon and we'll get back to normal. We'll just make it and we'll live and next year we'll be better. Or maybe they wasted their energy on blaming the leaders for their locust prevention and treatment policies. If you guys would be better, be better leaders, we would have a better plan in place for dealing with these locusts when they come or treating the locusts when they show up. Maybe they got caught in battles about whether the, the temple sacrifices should have been stopped or not. Because if you miss it in the passage, it says that the things are so bad, they're not enough cattle and livestock, the things that they, would, that they would be sacrificing at the temple, there's not enough of those to even continue their sacrificing system. So sort of like us with COVID, their temple or their churches shut down for a time because they didn't, couldn't keep on going the way they had. And maybe they got caught in battles like we did over whether the temple sacrifice should have been stopped, maybe the church should have been going on or not. Maybe they're distracted by the business opportunities or losses. They're consumed by those things. Or maybe they were just caught dreaming about the good old days. Man, do you remember when they weren't locusts like this? Maybe they blamed the prior generation for not planning well enough ahead. There's a, a million ways that they could have been distracted. And here's the thing. Every le- distraction that tries to call our attention away from the message of God in the behind the mess the message behind or in the mess that every distraction seems legit it feels proper to give it great weight if you're if you're one of those people at the time and you're 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 a farmer and these locusts have come in man it could be very easy to blame the leaders for not warning you or having a better plan in place if you're a part of the sacrificial system, one of the priests or the Levites, it'd be really easy to get caught up on whether we should have stopped the sacrifices or not instead of seeing what is God saying to us in this moment that we're in. And the message is always meant to draw us back to him, not to co-opt him for our cause, but to draw us back to him. And here, so here's my question for us this morning. Is it possible that we are in a period of time like Joel was speaking into Is it possible that we're in a period of time like Joel was speaking into? I think it's not only possible, I think it's probable, and more than that, I think it's certain. But I don't think it's certain that we're going to respond properly. Let's look at the state of the American church. Here's the state of the American church. Almost no one, almost no one is saying it's healthy. Everybody that I read, everybody that I talk to, no matter where they fall theologically or what they think the answer is, almost everyone I read, everyone I hear from says something is wrong with the American church. Now here's a question. Is God still at work? Absolutely. God was at work in this day. God was at work when the locusts were there and they were swarming. God was at work when the temple sacrifices had stopped. God never stopped working Has God forgotten his people? No. God didn't forget his people here in the middle of their crises. He is working and drawing them to himself. He is still at work. He has not forgotten his people. Is he still sovereign and in control of all things? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean, all those things can be true. God is at work. 
He has not forgotten his people, and he's still sovereign and in control of all things. And yet, it doesn't mean that things are way they should be for God's people. Because here's the case with the American church. We're losing numbers. Almost every major denomination is in decline. Every stat that you read, people are still coming to Christ, but the people that we're losing outmatches those who are coming to Christ. Almost every denomination is shrinking. We are losing numbers. We are losing influence. We don't have the same influence in culture that we used to have. We've lost cultural goodwill. The goodwill that people used to have for Christians in the church say, oh, you're a Christian? That must mean that you're a good person. You're a church? That must mean that you are doing good things. We've lost that sort of cultural goodwill. We're losing also respect and credibility. Do you see that in some of your... uh, unsaved friends and family members. The church Christians don't have the same respect and credibility that we had in the greater culture and even with non-believers that we used to have. Not only that, but we're losing an entire generation. This is incredibly serious. Millennials and Gen Z see very little inside the church in American Christianity to draw them in. And we're losing those that were in the church who are rushing out the back door. That's not good news. And here's also the case. If you're one of the ones that are saying, hey, I'm fighting a culture war, then guess what? We're losing that too. Because the culture war isn't won or lost at the ballot box or at, the, or at a court bench. It's won or lost in the hearts of people, and we are losing the winsome argument with those who are far from Christ. Not only that, but we as a church didn't come out of COVID exactly stronger than we did before. We came out in fewer numbers, we came out smaller and weaker, and we came out more divided because we have had fights and separation over things like mass and distancing. I talked to so many pastors who said, hey, if I knew whenever I came out of seminary or I started this church or I came to this place, if I knew the biggest arguments we would have would be over where we should socially distance or wear a mask or not, I would, have, I would have laughed in your face. The point isn't social distancing or masks. There's something underneath that. Not only that, but over the past few years, we've faced a cultural moment with race. And instead of modeling Christian love and speaking prophetically to sin, we turned on each other and we went on crusades either against or for something called CRT that most people don't even understand and missing the point altogether. Plus, there's the general condition of the average American Christian. Many leaders, I... I, people I talk to, people I listen to and read. One thing they agree on, they may not agree on a lot of doctrine or theology, but here's what they agree on, that the attitude and character of the average, even committed Christian in America has deteriorated. Pastors are exhausted and they're leaving ministry faster than they ever have before. And one one of the things that they say it's always, it's always difficult to be a shepherd of your sheep because sheep bite. We, we're, we're sheep ourselves. We get confused. The whole thing can be broken. 
But here's what I hear from other pastors. They're leaving ministry because they're tired of dealing with complaining and angry professors of Christ. I think the Lord, that's not my experience here, but it is many people I talk to, many, many people. Many pastors and leaders have called our current situation a discipleship or a spiritual formation crisis. In other words, they're saying our Christians don't look like Jesus. We have a type of Christianity in America that resembles or well, we'll call it a type of religion that resembles Christianity, and it's taken the place of true Christianity in many American churches, where Christianity has become more cultural than biblical, more political than about Jesus. And what has happened in the middle of that, all that is we've adopted the American dream as part of the gospel, and it's snuck in with its tentacles and its stifling and choking out true Christianity. Christians have rallied to the call of politicians and political parties rather than Jesus and his church. Many have bought into the lie that the right leader or a certain party in power will be the answer to their angst. And Christians are now more divided over politics than maybe anything other than race. There's been a great resorting in churches throughout the country, as I've talked to other leaders, that have been a, been a great resorting over during the COVID season, a resorting of Christians among churches, not over even doctrine, but upon cultural and political standpoints. Christians have become self-satisfied with wealth and comfort. We think small. We tend to think, as long as my family and I are comfortable, then I'm content. And if they aren't, then we have to find someone to blame. We have to find a new comfort and a new security. We become comfortable and secure in our wealth, in our luxury, in our entertainment, rather than in Christ. And yet, even saying that, we're not truly satisfied, are we? Most believers I know have a gnawing sense of discontent in their soul. A deep dissatisfaction within their soul saying, this cannot be what this is supposed to be. Church, Christianity, my life, my walk can't be what it was supposed, what it was supposed to be. So the question becomes, what do we do with our dissatisfaction? What do we do with our discontent? What do we do with a sense that there must be more to this life? What do we do with a sense that there must be more to Christianity? There must be more to the church. What do we do, by the way, to, do, to be clear, what do we do with a lack of true conversions? Now I'm speaking about our church in particular not just the general church, though it applies. What do you do with a lack of true conversions or trickling of conversions? What do you do with a culture that seems to be choking away the faith in so many believers? What do you do with a lack of God's power in your life? What do you do with a lack of God's power in his church? What do you do with a lack of God's presence, God's sensible, felt, 
tangible presence among his people, which has always been the sign of his presence and the promise and treasure of his people. We're so often too content in our discontent to actually do anything about it. We don't like where we are, but we don't want to face it. So we'd rather distract ourselves, we'd rather entertain ourselves, we'd rather complain than lament, we'd rather point the finger at others, we'd rather find a quick fix. But what does Joel do to the people who are in a similar situation than we are? He tells them to first of all mark this moment. Notice what's going on, but then mark this moment. He says in verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament. Respond, in other words, to the only and the only way that the situation that we are in calls for. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go past the night in sackcloth. That was a very, so you would, if you were in mourning or if you were lamenting, you would put on sackcloth. It was very scratchy, very uncomfortable. And he says, not only put on that sackcloth, but wear it overnight. Do not give yourself, and the sackcloth isn't, isn't, doesn't inflict yourself like, hey, God's going to see me, my prayers, if I am I in, um, uncomfortable. No, it reminds you, hey, I am uncomfortable. It says, don't give yourself rest. Pass the night in sackcloth of ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of God. He says, don't, let, don't just let time pass. Don't just turn a blind eye and hope things get better. Notice what is going on and mark this moment. Have the guts to mark this moment and say, there is something wrong and only God can fix it. That's where we're starting to go. There's something wrong. And the answer is, all right, let's go out and hire a new minister or change our, our plan or get a building or change our, our approach, our strategy. No, any of those things may happen, but the answer to what is wrong is not any of those things. The answer is that only God can fix it. He tells them, notice what is going on, mark the moment, and then Joel calls, calls God's people to mourn. Not to simply mourn at the loss of their crops or, yeah, do that, but to mourn at the state of their hearts that brought them to this moment. That's what he's saying to us. Lament and mourn. Lament is mourning directed at God. In other words, it's not just complaining, oh, I wish we had this, or I wish this was better. Lamenting is mourning that's directed to God. God, I am, I've noticed the situation we're in. I'm marking this moment, but I know you are the only one that can help. You're the only one can change things. And so I'm turning and directing my mourning to you saying, Lord, God, would you come and fix what only you can fix? Would you come and do what only you could do? Would you come bring repentance and correction to us that is needed? But you are the one that has to do it. We can't do it ourselves. We can respond, and we must respond, but it can only be him. It can only be him by his power that can do that. Verse 15 and 16 of Joel 1, alas for the day, for the day of the, he models for us what, the, what a lament looks like. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off from before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? Verse 19, hear this, to you, O Lord, I call. 
For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. To you, O Lord, our call. What, what Joel is doing is he's issuing a serious call to corporate prayer. That's where we take it. That's where we take lament in our mourning. We're going to be talking more about that over the next couple of weeks as we look at Joel. Next week we're going to look at what it looks like to repent together as a people, but we start with lamenting. We direct our dissatisfaction and our discontentment to God, and we stop living like life is normal. We stop trying to fix the symptoms, and we go to the heart, our own heart, and to the only one who can change our hearts. He says, fast. Again, fasting isn't like, it's, it's like sackcloth. It doesn't cause God, oh, I see you skipped a meal or two. Uh, I guess I'll move. Fasting reminds us of, of our own weakness. It reminds us of how hungry we are, not just as hungry as we are for the food to be on the table. We are actually, we're saying, I'm hungrier for God's presence and power to be evident in my life, in our church, in our generation, than I even long for the next meal. He says, fast. And then he says, assemble together. Call together an assembly. He, in other words, he says, it's important enough that you don't just stay in your own, that you say, we're going to mark this moment by coming together, assembling together and showing this is serious. We are set apart. We are setting ourselves as a people apart. God, we're saying this is wrong. We're marking this moment and we're crying out to you together at the house of the Lord, he says, with God's appointed leaders at God's appointed place to say, God, we are coming together seriously to call out to you, to lament and cry that you would come and change what only you can change. That's what he says next. He says, fast, assemble, and he says, call out to the Lord. Call out in personal prayer, but call out in corporate prayer together to say this is serious enough and important enough. I long to see God move enough that we're going to mark this moment by setting ourselves apart and calling out to the Lord. There's this story in Judges, verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 26. Just to give you an example, that Israel had lost a battle and then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel, which is where they met with the Lord, and they wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel, listen to this, they lamented, they wept, they cried out, and they inquired, verse 27, of the Lord, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before the, the ark in those days. And they asked him, shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord then spoke to them, go up for tomorrow, I will give them into your hands. See, that's the hope of our lament. We don't just mourn for the sake of mourning. We mourn to cry out to God to mark this moment to call out to him because we trust that he's the one that only can answer but will answer God's people when they cry out to him. Do you remember at the beginning I said Joel was good news? It may not feel that way yet, but it is because it's the pathway to wholeness. Because you see, you don't get to Easter without going through Good Friday. You don't get the outpouring of God's spirit that he's going to be talking about in a few verses from now, you don't get the outpouring of God's Spirit without repentance. 
And you don't get repentance without confession. But here's the good news. Because of Jesus, confession and repentance shouldn't be something that we fear. Does Jesus, eternal Son of God, know everything that you have ever done in your life and everything that you will do, good and bad? Yes. Did he still die on the cross to take the penalty for everything that you have ever done and ever will do? Absolutely. He died for us and he has risen for us and his blood is powerful enough to cleanse us. His love meets us in our mess. And he says, if you will simply come to me and believe in me in confession and repentance, I will do the surgery that takes to change you, but you will not experience change until you do that. As long as you keep me at bay, at an arm's length, you won't receive the health and wholeness that you're looking for. But he loves to meet us in our mess, and his love meets us in our mess, and his power is great enough to change us. And he's promised to do it. He gives us the book of Joel and so many more places in Scripture as encouragements and urging to say, whenever you see things are bad, if you will simply call out to me, I will come and I will change you. Because that's the biggest thing that needs to change. We only need to turn to him and believe. That's all. Just turn to him and believe. And he will hear us and he'll move. We're going to end that with that moment today as we approach the table. As we partake of this communion meal today, we're going to do so by making a move. As you come forward to take the, the wafer and the cup, you're going to come forward to say, God, I'm turning to you to to." believe. I'm turning to you. I'm asking that you will help me in, in lamenting and mourning my own life, my family, our church, our generation, the American church, so that your people who are called by your name would call out to you and you would hear us and you would come and move in our midst. And I'm taking this, I'm taking this wafer and I'm taking this cup as the down payment that you're committed to doing that. That's the commitment, the anchor that we need. How do we know that God will hear our prayers? Because of his broken body and his shed blood on our behalf. So if you're a believer in Christ today, we open the front to you. Uh, what we're going to do is the band's going to come, come up and they're going to play a song. We're going to kind of sit. Just take a time of, of reflection and prayer. You can sing along if you like. You can stand or sit. You can kneel, however you want to respond. At the end of that song... Then the, our communion servers are going to come forward. We're going to have a station on each side with the, with the wafer and the cup come on the outside and come back towards the middle. And then Tyson will lead us. We're going to partake of it together again this week. And Tyson will lead us when to uh, partake of that. So take the cup and the wafer back to your chair and we'll partake of it together as a family. Lord, I thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, the living, reigning Son of God, who invites us that even in our brokenness, even in our uh, crises, 
even whenever we aren't where we should be, that he is standing with open arms to draw us in. So, Father, I pray that you would grant us the ability and the wisdom to mark this moment, to notice what you are doing, and to call out to you individually and together as a people, that we would see you move in our church, that we would see you move in our lives, we would see you move in this city, and we would see you move in our generation in ways that are unmistakable. Trust you. We thank you for your goodness to us in Christ Jesus.